longest, but I know the ones which work. And, uh, and I've been doing that really for about 30 years. I set up Pentacle Virtual Business School. And then I invented Cube, which is a transformation machine where you go in at one end thinking you know how to, I don't know, work or learn or whatever it is or run meetings and come out the other end as an avatar who is completely engaged in collaboration and so on and so forth. So that's me. Excellent. And we'll definitely be exploring how collaboration will change the future of work. Patrick. I have a background mostly in like sort of IT, uh, projects in IT, and uh, did, um, did a brief period in a management consultancy that worked with change from a pedagogical approach. And after that, I, I asked myself the question, wasn't I going to be the, this great transformational leader? And I was, you know, running up on 40. And uh, luckily, I was, um, I was uh, recruited as a, as a sort of first level, first line manager in a consultancy and started to sort of build my game and um, have now been in leadership positions within large transformations, often around agile needs or uh, innovation needs uh, for the past, say, five, uh, six years. So what I bring to the, to the table is some experience in moving traditional organizations towards a more agile mindset. And with that, trying to understand how to create systematic innovation capabilities. Wow, that was not at all as exciting, you guys. <laughs> well, actually, it is. So tell us a little bit about your brief at, in Helsingborg. I've been given the wonderful opportunity to work with the city of Helsingborg. Helsingborg is, is a small city, uh, just an hour north of, of Malmö in southern Sweden. A small city, but not so small that it doesn't face the same challenges as most cities, regardless of size, uh, throughout the world. And um, in an attempt to take control of that future with these challenges, the city has decided to earmark funds for innovation. And by innovation, we do not mean just developing a little bit faster or becoming a little bit better at developing what we have. They mean actually taking those huge quantum steps and finding completely different ways of uh, providing the services that we need to provide in, in a society. And um, I've, I have a role as a, as a sort of a chief innovation advisor. There's actually two of us, my, my closest colleague, Lisa, and I, who started off by helping the, um, the director, the, the, the highest level of, of um, civil management within the city, getting that, that director and his uh, team of, of leaders, the directors of the various departments, to orient themselves around, okay, so what do we mean by using innovation? And what is innovation? And what does that entail for us? What kind of processes, roles, organizations do we need to establish? How do we sort of um, follow up on, on our change process? And so on and so forth. And um, it's been working with this for about one and a half years now, and it is absolutely thrilling. And I would like to say it's flying uh, and moving on its own, but it isn't. I mean, we've created a loss of change, and there are initiatives already running that are quite different to what you would have expected. And there are, we have established cooperations with lots of different companies, global firms around initiatives. I mean, there's a lot of things happening, for sure. But the actual transformation of the culture and the organizational capabilities within the city are really taking time. And of course, it is. it does take time to transform leadership, culture, organizational structures. And uh, we're really feeling that now, how, how it's all fun and balloons and, and trumpets when you're working with ideas and, and you're thinking about what to do with the concept. <laughs> completely different when you actually have to completely transform, say, the school department and how you work with your pedagogical approach and how you incorporate tools and what that means for your organization. A lot of learning going on right now and a lot of pain. Excellent. Thank you. So on that note, Eddie, you got fired for actually giving a damn about the customer. What Patrick has done in Helsingborg is instead of taking transport experts, he brought transport users into his team. And I'm really curious about your thoughts in terms of the way business needs to operate in the future to create collaboration and have users at the heart of any transformational change? Just looking at the big picture, that 
there's a lot of talk about change in the future of the world so I'll, uh, uh, of work. So I'll just sort of condense it into something very small. The reason we need to change, and I'm, I'm sure Gary and Patrick know this, is not because we need to change. It's because the pace of change is now faster than the pace which most organizations can learn. So if you had been having this conversation, I don't know, 50, 100 years ago, whatever it is, and the transport systems, users had never used the transport system. The only person who knew anything about it was the person who created it. Then that would be correct that they should define what, what it looks like. But because the world has changed a lot, it means the users now have probably more experience than the people who are building the, the, the systems. So you've got to flip it around. And it's like that with an awful lot of things where, uh, again, even with projects, in the old days, the project could be defined because we could learn faster than the world was changing. But now we need the stakeholders to define the projects. I mean, I, I, just, I hope Gary will agree with that. For me, these things are more of um, a pattern. It, it's like if we were doing physics, it's like a law. In the modern new world, where pace of change is faster than the ability to learn, the trick is you put the users at the front and let the people who are delivering come at the back, but not any user, because not all users are equal, okay? Most users <laughs> have not thought about the thing at all. The users you really want to put at the front are the ones I call obnoxious customers. They're the, oh, ones, yeah. they're the ones who are going to ask you to do things which you've never done before, you don't know how to do, and seem vaguely ridiculous, because they're actually maybe six months ahead of everyone else. And if you follow them, whatever you design for them fits for everyone else. Sorry, Mark. The, the research on this is really very interesting. Salesforce put out, experienced the shift in December 2020. And one of their key findings was that you accelerate product development by 600% by speaking to people who are pissed off. Yes. Yeah, exactly. And if you're not talking to people who are um, looking at your proposition, or the way you work, or the, the your product, and they're not criticizing it, what you will get is bland and banal. Yeah, um, and that doesn't help you to change. Yeah. So Gary, let's bring you in on this, because I know that you're not lacking an opinion. <laughs> yes, um, much of the reason why users are pissed off is because they're not engaged correctly. They're, nobody's ever asked them. And so their level of frustration can be quite high, and, and that's customers, that's people in cities or people in change management projects. I totally support Eddie to say that the dynamic has changed. For example, uh, if I work, I'm working on a big strategy project now, and you get people who study markets coming in with ideas, but actually the telling thing is in this project is people are coming forward and saying, this is what the customers want. This is what they're asking for. And that is information that's hot off the press yeah. that has not been processed by the McKinsey engine, <laughs> right? Yeah. It, McKinsey information is two or three years late. What the customer asked for yesterday and is struggling with yesterday is hot information, and that is the information you need to respond to. So on that note, one of the things that I have recognized through my work, is the critical importance to listen to the raw, unfiltered oh. conversations oh. that customers are having. Raw data. Sorry, say again, Eddie? Raw data. Raw data. Get the, get the CEO and the CEO people in touch with the raw data. Absolutely. And uh, Martin Lindstrom, who wrote biology, and he is uh, the foremost thinker when it comes to listening to the customer. He spends pre-COVID he was spending 270 days and nights a year living with customers to observe how they actually interact with product uh, and speaking to them. So, Patrick, uh, I know that you have some thoughts on this subject. Yeah, well, exactly. Because it is, it is odd, isn't it? The more, the more you become a specialist, the less you actually know. Because for some, <laughs> I, mean, I guess it's just our nature, right? The, the, the more we learn, the more knowledge we put into a structure, the more we have to then defend that knowledge and we stop listening. And I just want to connect to what, what you said about listening to the customer there. This thing with, uh, with the buses and the trains and the ticketing system, that was actually in a previous job. But the point was an organization which had, a, had, had had a very low turnover of staff, which can be a very good thing. But it can also increase sort of the feeling of this organization being self-sufficient when it comes to insights and, and drive. 
And when I was brought in to start to develop sort of the transportation systems of the future, one of the things I did with one of the other managers from sales or business development was to reconsider how, yeah, oh, sure, was to reconsider how we, where we develop and whether or not we should buy big systems or whether we should develop our own systems. And we decided to develop an agile lab. And we put this agile lab in a different city because we didn't want it to be sort of tainted by the existing organization, neither in IT or in sales. And also, we hired people who had no previous experience of public transport. We wanted them to be experienced product owners or scrum masters or, you know, whatever, architects, etc. But we didn't want them to have any experience of, of public uh, transportation. And many people in my organization were, were you know shocked and appalled and they, and they actually there was actually a bit of a shouting match at one one meeting and then we're all friends now and, and love each other um, many years have passed but they said exactly what type of system do you think these people will build and I said well one that you haven't thought of which I meant <laughs> quite honestly <laughs> Gary but it was they did they didn't laugh <laughs> <laughs> so Gary go ahead yeah, I just want to build on what Patrick said there, because I, my view is I do my best work in the businesses I know fuck all about. But it's fuck all because, like a technical term, which I've not come across. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, it's a business term. It's a management term. There's a square root of fuck all as well. <laughs> I do my best work in the businesses I know fuck all about because I ask the right questions, yeah. right? because I don't presume, I don't assume, and I ask the right questions. And I'd like to, we're going back to ask the users or ask the customer. Watch them, yeah. And I think the barrier to asking users or asking, asking the customer or asking people within your own organization is the arrogance and impatience of senior people. And let me build on that. Firstly, they assume that because, and, and bear in mind, I'm somebody who doesn't articulate myself very well. They assume that people don't know anything if they can't articulate themselves particularly well, right? Now, that is a really damaging assumption because it, it devalues those people and their opinions. It means that you don't seek them. It means that you don't sit there and try and listen and work out what the hell they're saying which I have to do as a transformation person to be successful. I have to get over these perceived obstacles to change. And the second thing is that people perceive people within their own organization as barriers and obstacles to change, first and foremost, rather than a valuable resource and a valuable, valuable supporters of change or advocates of change. So... If you perceive them first and foremost as barriers to change, you don't engage them, you don't consult them, they will never be supporters of change. And therefore, you, you're missing out on these advocates, these tremendously powerful advocates. And in fact, I think what you also do is you encourage them to throw spanners into the machine because they don't feel like they have a voice. At the risk of going yes. political, you only have to look at the, uh, the move uh, over the last 15 years to the far right globally, because what happened was uh, the people who were in charge didn't listen. And so a large number of the population felt that they didn't have a voice. So when someone uh, steps up to represent that voice, no matter how barking mad, they're perfectly happy to flip the middle finger to the establishment. And so what I'm really curious about, Eddie, because the work that you do is so grounded in collaboration and in getting the opinions of all the key stakeholders, particularly people who generally are not listened to, and uh, democratizing that process so that everybody's contribution is of value. So talk to me about why that is so important. Basically, there's a, a rule, third law of change. People create change, people constrain change. It's a law. So that's what Gary's just described. You know, If you get it wrong, they'll constrain you and lock you in. That's what you've said as well. So let's just understand some of the weird things about human beings, and then we'll understand how collaboration works. Number one, human design is weird. You've got two bits in your half, in your head or brain. If you have an accident, they split the two. Your right hand's working, your left hand's working, the two halves don't know each other. 
They, can, they can't work it out. Your heart has its own little mini brain as does your guts, but you think you're one person. And that's because you have to tell yourself this story about how wonderful you are so you can stay alive. It's called your ego. We all have this. This is one of the sources of the biggest headaches we have because your ego keeps you alive because, because I'm worth it, okay? So it's always telling you how great you are. One of the things it fools you into thinking is that your opinions matter. You, and people take their own opinions really seriously. They're not facts. There's nothing behind them. They acquired them from a newspaper, but they love them, okay? So this is one of the things. But the ego also does another thing, which is it creates what's called the big I am. There's a game I play to show people about this big I am. I get people in pairs, and I say, okay, I'm going to teach you to count to three. One of you says one, the other one says two, then three, then one, then two, then three. If you get two people, and they put them face to face, and you ask them to go one, two, three, one, two, three, they can't do it. Because, of course, the big I am takes over and says, I know how to do this, and the other says, I know how to do this. So one of them says one, and the other one's not listening to them. Of course they're not listening to them, because they're getting ready to present their number two. So they stumble over their two, and they can't work out where they've got to. And then I make them laugh and so on. And when they laugh and relax, then they can do one, two, three, one, two, three, and they can actually help each other. So that ego, that big I am thing, means that they literally can't hear each other, which is what Gary was saying. And the more senior they are, the more they want to tell everyone this is how it's done. They're not listening to anyone. And the point which um, Patrick was making about them coming up with new ideas, of course they do, because they're very different. So you have to get that connection, and you have to get past that. And the question is, how do you get them to start listening to each other? And all sorts of nightmares. I did a talk recently for a group that were looking at diversity and they want to bring lots of people in, introverts and so on. And I was explaining to them why diversity is so hard to sell and inclusion and collaboration are hard to sell to senior people. And uh, they were going, yes, it really is hard. I said, when you tell them, they all say, yes, we want collaboration. Oh, yes, lots of diversity and inclusion. And then they don't do anything. Do you know why? They said, no, we don't know why, because they seem so keen. And I said, let me explain to you. If you've got a bunch of friends and you go out every Saturday, you always have a great time. Everyone knows where everyone else fits. Then one of your friends says, I'm bringing you along, I'm bringing you along by other half. And everyone goes, oh, God, why? Why do you do that? Because you know this other half is going to disrupt the, the flow, the banter, Okay. So the other half comes along, everyone's very polite and so on, but they don't really involve that person. Then someone else is bringing that there, like, oh, God, no. And basically, as you add more diversity and different things in, the performance of the team just basically drops. We all know this at a human level. And it'll keep dropping to the point where either the group decide they're never going to meet again, in other words, failed project team, or one of them goes, well, now there are eight of us and we're all different. Why don't we have a weekend together to get to really know each other? In other words, reset ground rules, reset objectives, share each other's values, rebuild. So if you do that, then you can bring large, complicated people in to collaborate, get past their egos, and then it boosts. But we tend not to do that because we're stuck with our opinions, the big I am. <laughs> well, I, I always maintain that ego is the enemy. Ego thrives on drama. And uh, what, what I'm also very conscious of is that, I'm not sure if this is a very good segue, but I'm going to do it anyway. I think historically, we have played a game of win-lose, a finite game. And what I'm excited about with the arrival of COVID and the way it's forced us to rethink is I think there is an opportunity for us to start playing an infinite game. So for those of you who are not familiar with the difference, a finite game means one side has to win and one side has to lose. And people play to win or they play not to lose. And that's generally a very dissatisfying uh, outcome for at least one party. An infinite game means that you're trying to keep the game going. And the objective is to make the cake bigger, not take bigger slice from a shrinking cake. So with that concept in mind, Patrick, talk to me about how playing that infinite game is helping you within Helsingborg uh, to drive home your initiatives. Yeah, see, that is, uh, I'm, I'm still trying to get my head around this ever-growing cake. But the thing is, it, it's all a matter of the constraints we construct in our brain and, and our mindset and our idea of what we can achieve by changing the way we work. Because one big challenge we have when it comes to getting people involved in our innovation work is that people will say to you, how can you spend time and money on that high-risk stuff that will probably never fly when we have so many things that we need to take care of right now, problems that need solving right now? 
And it's a little bit about the cake, isn't it? They see the cake as finite. Uh, and if we, we have to take care of this one cake and, and sort of distribute it evenly or, or according to some, some logic, whereas what we're trying to tell them is, no, 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 never mind about that. Let's make the cake bigger. It's very hard to get people to connect to that. And if, you, if they don't believe it and if they don't buy into it, then you haven't established a common why. Why are we doing things? Why, why are we putting energy or, or, or funds into this, this initiative? And I think many people do not believe that the cake can be made bigger. But it's interesting, though, because during this past year and a half under COVID, we've shown so many examples of being able to do things that were completely impossible just three months earlier. I mean, how can it be that so many schools around the world have managed to adopt a completely digital platform over the course of just a few months when prior to that, it was completely impossible? It could not be done. Oh, teachers will never adopt. And we'll, there is not, there's nothing new to learn about our pedagogical approach in these digital um, platforms, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I guess you guys are, you recognize this sort of uh, rhetoric. You say it was and then bang. When you say it was impossible, do you mean they said it was impossible? Did you mean it was? Yes, exactly. Okay. Nothing has changed. It's the same technology. Nothing is new. I mean, we're in this Zoom conference and Teams and Google Meet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All these things existed prior. There's nothing new. The only thing that has changed is our is our acceptance of the technology and our ability to actually adopt it and use it and understand that this is what this is what matters now. And I think the important thing there is to understand the power of, of our man, mindset. That's the learning I want to I want to bring to to people I talk to about. What is change? I mean, what is really changing? Because we we think of all these obstacles that are out there, and and we 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 explain them as if as if they're out of our control. The truth is, the only obstacle is ourselves, and we are completely in control of ourselves. So it's it's odd, isn't it? So Gary, can I bring you in on this? So if we look at how senior leadership need to support these changes but they need to give people freedom to contribute. And talk to me about how, when you're working on these large transformation projects, often you have to replace the people that the senior leadership have uh, decided were, are going to manage that piece of the work. The first thing to do is to understand what the work is and, and looking at you know, responding to, to Patrick and Eddie on mindsets and bringing in people into the conversation what I find is you have to structure the conversations because people don't know how to input naturally into the future of a city they don't know how they, they've never had to do it before you can't just go and ask them the question what what should Helsingborg be what should we be doing so you have to structure that conversation and the way I structure it in um transformation terms is I see it as three horizons. I've got the 10-year horizon of unambiguous things that are going to happen, like zero carbon houses, zero carbon transport, digital blended learning. You know, these are things that we all agree sooner or later in the next 20 years we're going to get to. But they are not, we can't predict when, we can't predict how, because how can we, okay? But then if you go back a step to three-year goals, you can maybe say, well, if we're going to take a step to zero carbon houses, that means we're going to have to have some viable alternatives and we're going to have to invest to discover, to find out stuff. And so then you can actually set yourself some clear, valuable outcomes in the three-year And Marcus, I'm getting to your question. This is a very long-winded way of getting there. But you've got your three-year clear outcomes. And what I always say is strategy actually in an agile environment is very easy because it's entirely about what five things could this business or, or institution do in the next 18 months that will get us in the best position to reach our three-year goals. And then this is where the rubber hits the road for transfer, transformation because I need to get a senior management in, 
engagement and alignment on those five things. And if I can't get alignment on those five things, that's going nowhere. So I have to take action on the senior management team. And so I either have to get them on board or off board, okay? Because we ain't going anywhere on the five things if we can't agree them, right? And a senior team that can't uh, agree the five things has to be changed. The next thing is when you break down the five things and you break down the work that has to be done, and if you look at the key work streams and the leaders of each key work stream, and if you have somebody who is not capable, credible, or committed to lead each work stream, then as a program director, I say to myself, that thing ain't going to happen. And in a joined up world, and in a, in a you know, any transformation is cross-functional. If one of the, one of the strings, one of the components is not going to happen, then the whole thing is dead. And so if I don't take action on that person, either to lift that person and support that person or move that person out and move somebody else in, then the whole of the organization is looking at that work stream going, well, that will fail because it's led by so-and-so, or worse still, led by nobody. That's a mistake a lot of companies make is they go too wide. So they try and eat, eat the whole elephant at once and you haven't got enough people, you haven't got enough bandwidth. So... People are everything, but that's how I come down from the vision to the specifics and then get the people sorted. And you need to sort the people first because the people take the longest time to sort. Excellent. Ed, Eddie, your thoughts? <laughs> no, that's just perfect. That, that's absolutely spot on. I mean, the, the elements are about people are, are I, I try to describe, but if you get the people right, then you win. There are tricks you can use even when people are trying to resist change because you can hack human brains. For example, we know that there's a piece of software here, your amygdala. If something surprises you, it takes you through the same channel every single time. A change comes along, it goes, oh my goodness, this change could kill me. It makes you emotional. And then once you're emotional, it then makes you really scared, fills you with adrenaline. This, this is the process which happens all the time. The emotional process turns your logical brain off. And what happens is you remember the emotions. That's why people say things like, when they made that decision in 1992, I said. So it's easy. With, it's easy. Like, I, I, I mean, one of the favorite stories I, I enjoy talking, telling about is going to lunch with an FT100 CEO who'd just taken a new job and was complaining that people were resistant to change. And I said to him, how do you know they're resistant to change? And he said, because I keep changing things and they keep resisting. And what was happening was he got into this organization and he said, you guys are useless. Customer focus, I'll fire you. Okay. So, of course, they run around. They pretend they're doing customer focus. They show him some nice PowerPoints, customer focus roadmaps and things like that. But then he makes the mistake of going to the next topic. Now, value for money, I'll fire you. So, of course, they realize he stopped beating them up. So, they go back to the old ways and, and start showing him PowerPoints about value for money. And so the reason they were resistant to change was he kept surprising them, turning their logical brains off, making them go emotional, and then they became cunning and played tricks. So one of the things which you do if you want to engage people is, exactly as Gary said, exactly as Patrick said, you have to involve them in the process of creation from the ground upwards. Because when you invent an idea, here's a trick I'll play on you. Have you all of you noticed how brilliant all your own ideas are? They are. You've all got brilliant ideas, haven't you? <laughs> no, they're rubbish. There's rubbish because everyone else is. But what happens in the second piece of software in your brain, when you have an idea to stop hunter-gatherers dying of hunger uh, because your brain burns energy 10 times faster muscle, it, it makes you fall in love with your idea so you'll turn them into more food. So, so if you understand that that's deep in the brain, you I've can... I've been very successful at that. <laughs> They can hack it because you, as, as Gary was saying, you let make the conversation so they start inventing little bits. And then they start falling in love with their own narrative. And now they own the bloody thing and then they want to turn it to more food. Whereas if you go and ask, I'm the big I am, I'm going to show you how to reinvent a city. And you put your stuff up, scare them, their logic goes off, they go all scary. Doomed. Everything you say to them, when they reply, it's a lie. <laughs> so on that note, Patrick, um, so... The, the theme of today is the future of work. Um, in terms of the initiatives that you are uh, implementing within Helsingborg, um, I'm really curious to see how you're partnering with businesses to look at how an entire city 
can innovate so that you can become a hub of innovation. How uh, business leaders are warming to the idea or resisting it? Yeah, good question. So what H22 is, is an abbreviation of Helsingborg 2022. So in the summer of 2022, we'll be hosting a, a, a smart city expo, hopefully if in, in the physical world, if not uh, in the digital world. Under this sort of uh, brand umbrella, we have one initiative, which is about getting the whole world excited about this expo and involved in it. And I'll get back to that. And the other side of the coin is about it creating the, as I said before, what I've been brought on board to do together with my colleague Lisa is to establish the ability within the city to transform and work systematically with innovation. Now, first of all, to start with the uh, innovation setup that we have internally, what we try to help people do who have a challenge or an idea is not to try to solve the challenge on their own or not to try to implement the idea on their own, but instead to look at the big picture and then first ask themselves a question. If we can solve this, what kind of value would we create? And secondly, who should we invite to talk to about this challenge? As in other departments, oh, way or behold, even our inhabitants or inhabitants in other cities or companies. Uh, locally or internationally. So we try to establish from the start on the idea that the uh, it is not our problem to solve, it is the world's problem to solve. And the more people we involved in, in looking at the problem and addressing the problem and thinking about solutions, the more likely that we will think of something that has never been thought of before. So that's one part of my answer to that question. The second thing, this umbrella, this huge brand of which sort of embodies innovation within the context of Helsingborg, is about building up a network of companies that are interested in using the City Expo as a platform for whatever they might find interesting, you know, a communication platform or a marketing platform. And we give them the, the opportunity to use Helsingborg as a bit of a test bed. Whatever you want to try to do, tell us what it is, uh, and we'll involve the right departments and we'll set up the, whatever prerequisites that need to be in place for you to test your solution, whether it has to do with safety or teaching and learning or environmental issues, you know, whatever. And uh, we have a, a large network of, say, 50-plus companies, some of them global companies. And in fact, just the other day, IKEA had a press conference where they described what they are going to do. And it's a huge investment from them. And they've actually never done anything similar where they're going to orientate themselves in the lives that are lived in the city, in different parts of the city. And their biggest investment is actually in one of the sort of less attractive areas, not, you know, the, the waterfront, new buildings, but the older rundown areas where they're going to be doing lots of different things to sort of look at how can they change how people live their lives? How can they be involved in giving back to community? How can they be involved in creating opportunities for people to, to work differently, to be involved in um, getting people out of unemployment, for instance, and creating value in different ways? So we are all about getting everybody involved. And I'd just like to add one final thing. One of the first things we established when we started working with different ideas and innovation pilots within the city was we created the database. And we put the database online and it's open for anybody. And you can look through this database and sort of focus on different departments or different initiatives or different problems that they're looking at solving and read about them. So we're actually telling people, this is what we're doing. Some of the things have not turned out well. Some of the things are ongoing. Some of the things are still early ideas. Come and tell us what to do. Help us. Join us. And we share, of course, all the learnings we do as well. You've touched on something else that I'm clearly observing in the best organizations and the ones that are changing most effectively, which is transparency and clarity of communication. So, Gary, let me bring you in on this, because I know this is something near and dear to your heart as well. Uh, yes, uh, transparency, authenticity, all very important in transformation. You know, I use the example of senior man management whispering away in boardrooms about how their factory is under threat, imagining that the workforce don't know and haven't noticed that the production line has slowed down and the order the order volumes are half of what they used to be. I mean, 
you know, you've got to live in the real world and treat people as human beings and, and don't treat them as idiots. They know what's coming and they're expecting the conversation. So go and have the bloody conversation. So that's one example. I haven't got another one to, to mind. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I think a theme that I'm bringing to all of my clients. So I'm working as CRO for a number of organizations. And one of the philosophies, the underpinning philosophies is rigorous authenticity. In order to be rigorously authentic, you need to be transparent. You need to be vulnerable. And you need to be ready to speak to the people who are going to help you be successful. And that sometimes means that you need to go with, I don't know what to do. Help me. And it fosters enormous credibility. But the problem is that when people's egos get in the way and they're brittle, they try and hide stuff. And organizations are made up of people who know what the hell is going on because they gossip around the water fountain, around the kettle. They go out for a drink in the pub um, and they speak to one another. And if you're not listening, if you're not taking on board what they're telling you, then they will have a view that this too will pass. And they don't feel like they're engaged. And the single biggest factor from the Salesforce research that determined whether customers achieved the success they wanted was employee engagement. So, Eddie, let's bring you in on this, because I know this is a subject very close to your heart. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you were asking about the future of work, and, um, and uh, so I'll sort of try and do it in the round. When people say the future of work, I often ask them, I say, what do you mean? I, I just love poking them. I say, what do you mean? I say, no, well, what will happen in the future of the work? You know about the future. I say, what do you mean? Do you mean the future of the work? Do you mean the future of the workforce? Or do you mean the future of the workplace? And then they flannel around because there are three different things, whether we're talking about people, in terms of transparency, engagement, and so on, whether we're talking about how we work, collaborating, using tools, using methods, software, whatever, or whether we're talking about the place we work. Is it in the city? Is it at home? Is it digital? And so on. And there are three completely different challenges which actually have to be addressed very differently. So if we take the future of the work, place. In my life, I spend all my life as an avatar on Cube. And that's why Marcus knows this. All my team around the world, we just live as avatars. So my workplace is on the computer. So when I hear Patrick talking about the future of cities, I'm busy in the back of my mind thinking, is that coming back or not? I'm not sure. Because we've learned exactly, as you said, Patrick said, that these things are not impossible. We can work without being in a place. So it's interesting. But the workplace is important because the software you use for your working environment has hidden assumptions in it. So when we come on Zoom, somebody has to let you in, i.e. there's a grown-up, i.e. there's a hierarchy. So if you build software which has a hierarchy and people have to ask permission and put their hands up, and then you turn around and say, well, you're not very inventive and creative and transparent and involving people, what the hell were you expecting? So the software drives our behavior because humans are more flexible than software. So if you're choosing software, you want software which will enhance and enable people, not the stuff which is available to everyone, which was written 20 years ago, five years or three years ago, pre-COVID, which is going to change your behavior. So that's the workplace piece. In terms of the work itself, we talked about this earlier, collaboration. Gary talked about the importance of bringing people together in their work streams. These are all new ways of talking. Patrick talked about agility. I use these things called performance enhancement tools or people engagement tools to engage people because I want them to think together. So we have simple frameworks which let everyone contribute very fast. Now, engagement is really, really crucial in terms of the work. And work moves from meetings to workshops. It moves from meetings to drumbeats, so there's frequency. Things move from people being individuals to networked and, and so on. So the work actually also changes. The workforce is another nightmare. Because in the old days, what would happen is people would join a company, the culture would go, then they would die. So instead of you look at the percentage, most people are in the same sort of generation. But because we've been changing so much, we now have it so that we have five generations of work, all with different assumptions of what transparency looks like, where they should be working, when they should be working. If it's relevant and okay to talk about your dog at work, you get a boomer and you start talking about your dog at work and they go, we don't talk about dogs at work. You know, you get a kid and they talk about, oh, well, this is what's happening. Look at my dog and I've got this little puppy. And, you know, so it's so, so different in terms of their, even their ability to value the same things. So when we talk about the workforce, it's about that thing I was talking about, diversity of building 
as Patrick was saying, a language, a, a way for them to talk together. So the future of work is, is a complex thing, which unfortunately, when I was a consultant, uh, uh, an academic, we used to have this joke where if you send a course on marketing, you can only get like one grand per person for the course. But if you call it strategic marketing, it's 10 grand, okay? It's called a magic word. Magic <laughs> words let people put their hands in their pockets and give you money. So digital transformation, it used to be a magic word. Future work is a magic word. So everyone's saying it, but not really exploring it properly. I don't know if that answered your question or not, Marcus. Excellent. Gary, uh, you've got something to say on this. Eddie talks about engaging people in the, in, in, in the conversation, and I, I, you've heard me talk about this before. It's what conversation do you want to engage them with? If you engage them on performance improvement, that's a workhouse conversation. That's a boring conversation, right? But if you engage them with build the future, that is a more stimulating conversation, okay? Mm -hmm. And that comes back to my, you've heard me say this, the future of work, we've got to put the build the future horse back in front of the financial cart. Because at the moment, I feel that the financial cart is in front of the build the future horse, which means that we're ruled by the financials. And that is not saying that financials are not important, but if you haven't got a build the future horse leading the financial cart, then actually you might not have a future. And also, going back to the conversations Eddie's going on about, is it's not an interesting conversation talking about performance improvement. And if you rule by the financials, look at the path you're going down. Performance improvement, functional conversations, not cross-functional, siloed. You rule by functional KPIs. You're talking about functional best practice as opposed to build the future, which is about value creation. It's about putting in, in the building blocks, for the cross-functional building blocks for building the future. Then you can get engagement and vision, and you've got story, and you've got purpose. So you've got to have the two. I'm not suggesting you get rid of the financial controls that rule the business. You've got to make money to pay for building the future. The most stimulating conversation for people is, is around the build the future. So let, let's dig into this a little bit, because what I often see is the church of finance, which everyone has to you know, worship at the altar, drives unintended consequences very often in the business. So I, I see so many privately owned businesses operating on quarterly reporting models. Now, there is no need for them to do that. And the unintended consequence, certainly from a sales perspective, is that you pillage next quarter's pipeline in order to make this quarter's number. You create a sales environment that is entirely transactional and about playing not to lose because you want to keep your job. And so you end up with people who are massively burnt out who are making mistakes, who behave unethically. And the net result of that is that you end up creating a, a business that is utterly dysfunctional. You end up with silos, uh, blame culture, excuses. You're constantly playing catch up. And it, it strikes me that unless there is a serious shift in the way we as capitalist societies think and the way leadership, maybe it's, it's my generation that needs to die off rather quickly. So you know, uh, uh, get, get rid of us um, so that we can bring in the next generation who seem to be more open to the idea of collaboration, of working towards values and living them as part of their ethos. So I'm really curious that, Patrick, let's bring you in on this. I suspect you have some interesting conversations with the finance people, but the fact that Helsingborg has made this commitment and given you a budget and given you the freedom to do what you need to do to experiment, even if it fails, you must be having very different conversations to many people. Definitely. And um, one of the big challenges here is motivating the investment that the city has made to the public, to media. And of course, for, to make it possible for the politicians to, to stand up to what they've 
the decisions they've made and, and uh, motivate them. So one thing we're we're working with the uh, the people who drive different innovation initiatives. One thing we are trying to teach them to do is first of all be transparent. Our innovation database, for instance, it, it keeps track of costs being being uh, incurred in the different initiatives, and also from the start try to identify the value that you will create. And of course, the more innovative something is, the harder it is to identify the value. Because if it was easy to identify the value, then you wouldn't be working with innovation. You would probably be developing something that already exists. We call this talking about the potential of, uh, of an investment rather than the return on an, on an investment. And from the start, these will be very vague sort of assumptions about what might happen. You can measure the value. Let's say we can do this 100% faster, or we need less teachers in the school, or people, how do you judge sort of uh, happiness? It's difficult, but you have to make assumptions about what you will achieve. And from the start, they will be very vague. And as the pilot sort of iterates and, and learns, you'll either kill it, or if you realize it does create value, you'll start to get a better idea of what that value might be. So we talk a lot about that from a perspective of, of uh, transparency. But one of the main things, and, and getting back to this of the going to the altar and, and sort of having the the cart, the financial cart in charge, is we, we try to talk about not managing risk, but rather embracing risk. Because, and actually this is interesting because I think it was you, Eddie, who spoke about surprise. Because if there's one surprise nobody likes, it's, oh my gosh, where did all the money go? Or we've lost money or, or we didn't get anything for our money. Well, that's one bad surprise. Uh, and of course, working with innovation and being agile is not about just creating these surprises. It's rather about embracing the uncertainty that exists anyway and trying to work your way around how do we make decisions in the short term and how do we make sure that we're not wasting money and how do we make sure we're moving in a direction where we will create value regardless of how we calculate that value. And for us, it's all about killing things quickly when they don't work. So instead of, for instance, which would be typical in a traditional environment, we're going to make a X billion investment in changing how we build our road, right? A cost, you can tell exactly how much it costs because the plan tells you, and you make some assumption about what it's worth. Instead of doing that, we say, okay, in the long run, this initiative might cost X billion, but all we need to do now is to start it off. So let's do it for three months, but if that works out, you know, these contexts can be vary a lot. So let's try for three months and see what we've learned. And if we do see value being created, we'll continue. If not, we'll kill it. And uh, those of you that are familiar with, you know, agile terminology, it's about to think the, the fail fast policy. And what we try to do there is try to manage the balance between the potential of what we're working with, with the reality of the learnings that we do short term. So our iterations are short. And we try to not make huge investments or plan big investments. And as we know, all long programs, all long project plans are, are based on lots of assumptions. And instead, we try to say, we don't know what's going to happen. In fact, the more innovative we are, the more sure we can be that we do not know what is going to happen. So let's take small steps and let's manage those small steps so we keep track of costs and let's try to learn what kind of value we're creating as we go along. I don't know if I really so answered your question, but. Um, well, it was a great answer anyway. Um, I can't remember what the question was. <laughs> Thank you. What you've sparked in my mind also then is that leadership needs to be willing to be vulnerable enough to embrace the risk of hearing things from obnoxious customers and from uh, users who are upset. So Gary, I'd love to hear your take on this. I'm reacting really to the statement that maybe we have to change as a society. I don't think it's a matter of changing uh, so much as a matter of adding another string to the bow. If we go back to the financial cart and the uh, build the future horse, the norms and processes around the financial part, a cart are very well known. We know what spreadsheets look like. We know what quarterly targets look like. These are very hard numbers. There's a strong well-established culture and ways of working around managing ourselves to financial deadlines. Whereas if we look at the build the future horse, if the horse isn't dead or dying and it's alive, 
there are less tangible processes, less tangible measurements, less tangible, unfamiliar ways of working, more personality-driven ways of working. So, so the, the typical example there would be the entrepreneur who, through force of personality, builds the future builds the vision in, in, in the minds of people and socialises that around the organisation. And, of course, when businesses get bigger, that isn't as possible. So the processes, the norms, the, the ways of working that Patrick was describing are not familiar within businesses. They're not well-established. They're not familiar. They're not known about. And... My job as a transformation director is to make building the future a hard sport, a sport with rules that we can see. There's a clear roadmap. There are clear components that are needed. This is how we have to behave. This is how we have to interact with each other. Because really, there is no norm. Uh, you know, I read Harvard Business Review. I listen to uh, McKinsey consultants and all of those people and and you know they there is no this is how you actually plan for the future there is no process no norm but for the financial side it's well established it's old and I'm not advocating throwing that out but we have to build the other pillar because we're we're a one-legged man at the moment you know and that's that's what I think okay well yeah of course yeah, so uh, I was listening to Gary and Patrick, and so, I mean, you know, I teach for a living. So one of the ways which I help people understand transformation goes way back to probably the first sort of transformation program I ran for an FT100 CEO uh, company, which actually worked. And I learned a lot from that. So roll back to the fact that I said everything seems to have flipped. So now the world can change faster than you can learn. And also linking back to some of Patrick's points about the world, the world changing. So bear all that in mind with COVID coming along and making us suddenly recognize that things which were possible, our brains and our, our big obnoxious egos made us think that they were not possible. They were all possible. I want to couple it with uh, Gary's horse and calf metaphor, but add a different metaphor. The way which I've been teaching transformation, which then picks up on this financial model and so on and helps people think about it in a more structured way, is to talk about butterflies, like the one above behind me. And it's important to recognize, and this is the crucial idea, that a caterpillar and a butterfly are not the same, and a butterfly is not simply a caterpillar with wings stuck on it. Now, that sounds really trite until you think about it. If we take a caterpillar and caterpillar world, what are the core competences of a caterpillar? Walk a lot, eat leaves, hang around with other caterpillars, you know, all that stuff. They know how to do that. That's your financial spreadsheets and all the rest of it. They know how to do more of the same. Their workplace doesn't have collaboration, but they have lots of meetings, okay? They know caterpillar stuff. They are brilliant at caterpillar stuff. What about a butterfly? What's that good at? Flying, looking cool, nectar, et cetera. Completely different competences. How does a caterpillar turn into a butterfly? Now, that's the interesting part. If a caterpillar hasn't eaten enough, in other words, if it hasn't got the right financial resources, the capabilities, and so on, it will die before it turns into a butterfly. It's important to keep the caterpillar alive with the current processes, mechanisms, things which we know succeed. Going back to Patrick's point, we have to keep working on what we already do. But to get to the butterfly, we have a problem because a caterpillar cannot give you flying lessons. It has no concept of flight. So when we go to Gary's, 10 years, three years, the 10-year thing is just a guess, which we all pretend we understand. But to be honest, it's usually bollocks. Sorry, am I allowed to say that? It's usually wrong. Yeah, yeah. The reason is because it's impossible for us to understand 10 years' time. In fact, if we created what we thought the future was going to be, then we've just created a fatter caterpillar because we should, in theory, not be able to conceive of it. So what Gary does in this transformation is he starts the caterpillars thinking about it. And then they start doing things. But then there's this cocoon. And that's what Patrick was talking about. The cocoon is all the little different experiments, which Gary's saying we need to get a language and a structure for that. Different things we do. Let's try this. Let's look at this market. Let's have a look. Let's listen to this obnoxious customer. Did it work? Didn't it work? Tons and tons of little cocoon activities which build the scaffolding around the caterpillar, which let us emerge in five, 10 years as the butterfly. 
And this is, for me, the structure I've been using to explain what's going on. And most organizations, they don't get this. They think they're building fatter caterpillars. And so all their money goes there. And you can, for example, work out a business case for a butterfly. I, I'm inventing a method. It's called the gap leap. Patrick, happy to share it with you. Where basically you can work out the business case for should we have a butterfly? And on top of that, not only can you work out the business case for shall we have a butterfly, but we have this, I have another method, which is what you're describing, called chunking stuff. Effort, benefit, effort, benefit. So that as you work through these cocoon steps, each one gives you a bit of spend. Did it come back? Yes. Did it come back? No, stop, et cetera. And those are the processes we need to add, as Gary said, to the way we work. But at the moment, people are still in there. I'm the big I am. I know how I am, I'm, how things work. I'm a CEO. I know about transformation. But they're not transforming. So the future of work for most people, if you ask me, is basically what they're doing now, but doing the same behavior and culture, but just on a computer. And they think that's the future of work. Gents, well, wait, I, wait, I think give you standing, standing applause there. Sorry, Marcus. And sorry I'm making a stand. I was actually writing down everything you said. Oh, that okay. was the best metaphor I've heard for, Honest, for ages. Honest. Thank you. Thank you. Excellent. We, we've come to the top of the hour. So one final point from each of you. Gary, please. Yeah, I just wanted to reinforce something that Patrick said about making bets and uh, build on Eddie's caterpillar, which I, I loved as well. And I shall steal unashamedly being an ex-consultant. <laughs> Obviously, that's, that's what we do. <laughs> we need to make bets, but we need to make control bets. The worst thing companies do is they leave all options open, right? And what you've got to realise, so you, they leave all options open and wait until things evolve. What you've got to realise is you've just said you will never be a leader, Yeah. okay? You will never be a leader. Well, not only is if you leave all the options open, you haven't got the bandwidth to leave all options open to start with, but you'll never be a leader. So you've got to make bets, and you've got to make bets in a controlled way, as Patrick said. So that's my thought for the day. Excellent. Eddie, final word? Yeah, thank you very much. I thoroughly enjoyed it. It was great because I've never met Gary before. So uh, actually, somebody whose projects work brilliant. And Patrick, I heard about your project. Fantastic. And I do wish you the best with cities, but I do panic sometimes about the way things are changing. And Marcus, thanks for inviting me. My pleasure. Patrick, final word. Yeah, I must say, a beautiful metaphor with the caterpillar and the butterfly. And I guess as we enter the cocoon, the challenge, the difficult thing, and I mean, things that are difficult, is it's why we exist, right? Why we do what we do. And it, it is difficult. That's just the, the nature of it. The idea of, of a butterfly is easy when you've seen the butterfly. And that's what <laughs> you, makes your, that's what makes your, your, it gives your metaphor its strength, but also its challenge. Because in the cocoon, we do not know what our butterfly is. And that creates this sense of uncertainty. And that's where these strong leaders that Gary was talking about have to come in. And we've seen so many examples throughout the years, so there's no need to mention them. But I can find that if you're going to be a humble as a leader, uh, you have to find that balance between accepting that we do not know, but all still painting a picture of some kind of butterfly. So I, I find that intriguing. I would love to have all of you back for another round, because I think this is a topic... Well, first of all, the future of work is a topic that's never going to go away. But I think we've touched on some really important factors here. And also, there are a bunch of things that have come to mind that uh, we haven't explored. So one thing we did touch on is what we need to keep. Something else I'd love to uh, dig into is motivation and recognition and rewards in order to drive the right behaviors. Patrick, absolutely loved the concept of potential of an investment uh, as a measure. And uh, again, that speaks to that infinite game uh, mentality. And the whole concept of drumbeats, uh, I think, is something that we need to explore further. How you sell the whole process of the future without terrifying people. You know, building the future is something that people can readily latch on to. Um, but performance management sends a chill down most employees' spine because it, it generally looks for what you're doing wrong and how you can be punished. So these are all topics that I would very much like to address in our next session, if you're willing. So in the meantime, Gary, how can people get a hold of you? 
I'm accessible via LinkedIn, Gary Mitchell Strategy Execution or Gary Mitchell Program Management, and I should pop up. And my email is gary at gary-mitchell.com. Excellent. Patrick? I'm on LinkedIn. Just look me up. Despite being Swedish, my name, Patrick, is spelled with a CK and uh, Lindquist, L-I-N-D-Q-V-I-S-T. LinkedIn's your shortest bet. And where can people look at that database? Oh, of course. I'd be happy to spread. It's very simple. Innovation.helsingborg.se. Welcome in. Excellent. And Eddie? There's a lot of typing as we get that <laughs> down. Um, so, Eddie, how can people get hold of you? Okay, so I'm um, my, my my details are here, um, eddieobang.com or eo at, at pentacle.vbs.com. You can track me down easily. LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter at eddieobang. Um, the model, the butterfly model, it's called Metamorph. If you Google that, you'll probably find it. I have a number of podcasts and things. I often will run open sessions on cube, qube.cc, which is my virtual world. So come have a look, register. I do sessions, I do like little uh, presentations, masterclasses and things like that. So come and, come and experience those as well. But yeah, sure, I'm, in, I'm a teacher. I love teaching people stuff. So come along and learn, thanks. Excellent. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. Personally, I can't believe that you haven't been inspired. So what I'm uh, asking you to do is make sure you comment, like, share and subscribe. And if you're uh, somebody who you think would be a great guest or you know someone who would be, then please get in touch with me either via direct message or via email. Now, if you're the owner or CEO of a technology company and your objective is to grow your business and achieve real, sustainable, superb hypergrowth so that the wheels don't come off, you build a fundamentally strong business, you get highly engaged employees who are highly productive and highly profitable, and clients who stick with you year after year after year, then let's schedule a brief conversation. You can reach me at marcus at laughs-last.com. In the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye.